Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stain, we appreciate you. To those ex who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are mentor moms and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and we remember you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to turn out. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who placed children for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those who are foster parenting and navigating the everyday unknowns of the system, we see you and we wrap around you our support. To those who are working hard to regain custody of your precious ones, we celebrate your progress and we lift you up along the way. To those who have adopted our navigating healing and attachment, we pray for you and we rejoice over the story of redemption that you're a part of. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We remember you. If you're new, my name is Greg, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. Um, we're glad that you've joined us today, and I hope you're not shocked that we're about to do some Bible teaching uh, we love Jesus, and we believe that uh, his Holy Spirit inspired 
a book to show us who God is, who we are in light of that, and most importantly, how a human being who has rebelled against God can be reconciled in that relationship back to our creator. And today, we are in the middle of a seven-part series that shows some of the implications of a human being being reconciled back to their creator. Namely, that when we are adopted by God as our father, we are adopted into a family and we have siblings. Christian said amen. All right, so this series, One Body, Many Parts, um, is an analogy that the Apostle Paul, a first century pastor, used to describe how a church functions together as one with Jesus Christ as the head. On Easter Sunday, part one, we said this, that Jesus' death and resurrection not only saved individual people and saves individual people from their sin, but it adopts them into the family of God. The next week we said an isolated Christian cannot use their spiritual gift. And so we encourage those who are Christians to join a disciple group. If you're already a part of a group where relationship is really important and you're authentic with each other, that's, that's all that matters. Uh, can you be real and put relational trust in each other? Be close enough to each other to bless and to serve. In week three, we said the Christian has no right to tell God, the church doesn't need me. So we encourage you, join a disciple group. That group does need you. The Bible says that God put you into this family for a reason to be a blessing to others. So don't tell him that he screwed up when he made you and when he saved you. Next, we said the week after that fighting sin with a friend is sharing your friend's burden. Jesus is pleased when you share that burden. So fight sin and fight it with a friend. You did not, uh, you were not born uh, of, out of darkness and into light to go back and, and hug the darkness and to treasure it and cherish it. That is not how children of the light behave. Last week, Chris, um, Conrad brought the heat. He tried to get across into our thick heads that Christians submitting to one another is a necessary part of learning to be the body of Christ. I don't hold on to my rights the way that I normally would from my American identity from my Christian identity, I am able to lay down rights carefully and purposefully in order to love and serve somebody else. The way Jesus, Philippians 2, I believe, has equality with God, but does not hold on to it and continue grasping onto it, but instead goes and submits, humbling himself, submitting even to death on a cross, right? So if the leader of the body will lay down his rights in order to serve and to love and to save, how much more do his children now need to follow what he modeled? And today, we are talking about the sledgehammer of the Christian life. There's no denying the simplicity of a sledgehammer. There's also no denying its power. It takes strength to wield this tool. Many of us, many grown adults, we could hit something with it two or three times and we're already feeling it, muscles that we don't normally use. But imagine needing to take out a concrete block that's gonna require two or three hours of work. If you're like me, you just lay down and pray, you know, your last prayer and you die. You know, that's, at some point you have to admit that you're out of shape, this is not gonna work. A sledgehammer, there's nothing complex about a sledgehammer. It is brute force. If you point it in the general right direction and there's any inertia to it whatsoever, it's going to do its job. And this, ladies and germs, this is what love operates like. 
So uh, I'm 35 years old. I've been in the church about 36 years. Yeah, one of those church brats. And so, so I'm with you. If you've got a long history in church and you're sitting here going, wait, is he going to tell us to love one another? The Bible says that all the time. Okay, yeah, I get it. New Testament says it more than 60 times, actually. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Interesting for how the body is supposed to be treating the body, caring for the body. Why does Jesus feel the need to repeat himself? Why does Paul feel the need to repeat himself? Right? So, the reason that some of us here in the Western world, we tend to scratch our heads or even to desire to tune out when we hear that the sermon is going to be love one another. Empiricism actually is the reason we go, oh, I already know that. I was already told that. Um, in my early years in uh, youth ministry, I remember hearing of somebody who said, a pastor, who, who said, I don't know what to preach on. I've already said it all. And even at the time, I wasn't totally sure. It didn't totally make sense to me. But now as some years have gone by, I think that's absolutely crazy. You telling somebody something once 10 years ago doesn't mean they're obeying Christ. You tell me something once, my poor wife, ask Emily if telling me something once gets anything done. You can't tell me anything once. Melissa knows. She practically amened and spoke in a tongue back there. Like, you can't tell Pastor Greg something once. It's got to happen repeatedly. Um, if your heart is anything like mine, if your brain is anything like mine, sometimes we've got to be told over and over again. So to be told, love one another is the sermon. I'm just like, oh, really? I already know what he's going to say. But you know what the thing is about a sledgehammer? It's super effective when you actually use it and you use it repeatedly. Love is not complex. And, and the empiricism of our culture where we think everything has to go under a microscope and I need to learn something new today or the sermon wasn't effective? Actually, no. You see, if I can get you to just move the sledgehammer pointed generally in the right direction, you, you will have done something effective. I need to get you to love, not to understand one new detail about love. James says it this way. There's somebody standing in front of you who needs a sandwich. And you say, Lord bless you. Stay warm. Eat well. Peace. When you have an extra sandwich in your pocket. Are you kidding me? That's Greg's standard version, but that's essentially what James says. There's a hungry person in front of you. Love them. You do not need to learn the Greek word, the different Greek words for love right now. There's a hungry person and you have food. Feed them. Okay? Love is the sledgehammer of the Christian life. A child can do it. If you've been a Christian, for five minutes, you can do it. You don't need an extensive long Bible study on love. You, your entire life, before you were a Christian, maybe you're listening today and you're still investigating faith and you're not sure, you know what love is. People know what love, you intuitively know. It's something very selfless, it's something others focused, and it's not easy. Continually wielding a sledgehammer is not easy easy. But like every tool, you will have muscles that develop if you keep wielding it. You will get stronger and you will wield it better. And I'm begging God that that's true because I want to love my wife and my kids better today than I did yesterday. 
And I hope yesterday I loved them better than the day before. I'm, I'm banking on what I believe is in scripture and I'm gonna try to prove to you today. I'm banking that this tool is just as effective as God told me it is. So I don't have any cool Greek for you today. And I don't even have anything new for you today. And I may not have anything that tickles your brain today. But at some point, at some point, the Christian life has to get past your brain and into your heart so that it finally gets to your hands and you do something. In the words of the great DC talk, love is a verb. If you were a Christian in the early 90s, you're with me. Everybody else lost as a goose. That's okay. Note takers, four things today. And here's the first one. This is for Christians, mind you. These are, these are commands to Jesus followers. So if you're not a Christian today, you get to kind of look from the outside in and, and see what this Christianity thing's all about. My love toward other Christians is measured, is a measure of Christ's lordship over me. Do I want to know, is he really the king? Is he really over me? Is he the boss? If, if you want to know if I'm alive, there are a few things that a nurse or a doctor might do. You know, an EMT, you might check for a pulse, right? There, there are certain things. Well, let me, let me flip it on its head. I don't mean to go walking dead on you here for a second, but if, if, a, if a trained nurse put his or her fingers here and absolutely felt a consistent, good pulse, is there any way that you're dead? There's just no way. I mean, maybe if you died a few seconds ago and, and, and the heart is still pumping, but like if, if it's been a while and that blood is still pumping, you're alive, okay? So a Christian serving, laying down his or her life to serve other Christians, it doesn't matter what else is going on, you are alive. You are a child of God if you are loving and serving other Christians. You haven't figured out what your spiritual gift is yet. You haven't maybe signed up and committed faithfully to a team. And you kind of think maybe you should. And you're like, well, I haven't gone on a mission trip yet. Am I a real Christian? Are you loving and serving people? And, and this sounds, and I want to say this particularly for those of you that are exploring faith and you're not sure yet what you think of Christianity. It can sound super um, cliquish or like a club when, when I tell you that the Bible says Christians are, are commanded to love each other. Um, that's... There are plenty of commands to love people that we've never met, people of a different color than us, people who are different language, different nationality. There's tons of that. That's what the Good Samaritan is. Okay? But there are commands first. And it's, I want you to see this. This is like a foundation because a family is messy. Can I get an amen? Like if, you're an, if you're an atheist, you can amen me on that one. Okay? Family is messy. And so just because you join the same church, it does not actually mean you all think alike. It doesn't mean you all feel like... We've got people, I don't know, we're pretty white suburban, but if you look at the, the whole church in particular, we've got Christians right now that fundamentally approach the world from a, the cop is usually the bad guy worldview. And that, that person loves Jesus fully. And we have people that approach the world from the cop is always right worldview. And so when another one of these shootings comes up, we have Christians in a place where they could fight each other and go at each other's throats the way that the world does. And people are doing it right now, actually. So let's not wag our finger at God when he repeats over and over again, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. I heard a story, unfortunately, of a church here in the Sacramento area, not far from here, that had over 750 people in weekend worship attendance. 
And in November 2016, when, by surprise to everybody, Donald Trump beats Hillary Clinton, the stuff that was posted all day, Tuesday Tuesday night and throughout Wednesday, revealed this rupture in the church of people... You know, some people in the church are distraught because the person that they wanted to win didn't win. Other people are gloating and, yeah, take that and blah, blah, blah. That church, 350 people left that church before Sunday. Because there was no love. Everybody has the right to political opinions. That's wonderful. That's great. But gloating is not love. Never. I mean, why, why does Paul keep using the word boasting and he's always talking about Jesus, right? There are always, this is what I'm trying to get across, there are always opportunities for Christians to not love each other. And this is foundational to being able to love. Like, or let, let, me, let me sass you for a minute. Let's, let, let me wax creative about what perhaps this might be. Shoot me a nasty email if I'm totally messing up the text, Renaud. It might be God is saying, look, church, let's start with something simple. How about you just love your, your, your person who already theologically agrees with you? If I can't even get you to do that, how are you going to love the Muslim next door? Like, let's, let's walk, and then we'll work about running and jumping. Is Jesus the Lord over me? Is he actually the Lord over me? Or do I think he's my homeboy? Is he some kind of a philosophical add-on in a pantheon of other gods that I put up on, like... So, children of the 90s are with me already, or if you were parenting in the early 90s. The Lion King, I want to say, what, 1994? Something like that? The climax of this story, and I love, I love it when people who uh, are not trying to make any particular theological statements, when they accidentally stumble on and help teach the gospel. Entire narrative that is not just an identity uh, journey, but it is a kingship identity journey. Now, for sure, they, they did it the secular humanist route. Like, you're supposed to see yourself in Simba, and you're like, I am more awesome than I am. I am power. I'm cool. I'm a snowflake. I'm whatever. Uh, but I, as a Christian, I just look at this story, and I, and I hear this story often now having kids, and we just pop it in the Xbox and, and watch it. Um, but I, I just, I cannot help but seeing through this story, instead of a uh, selfish, scared little Simba who believes a lie about himself and has to rediscover his identity, I just keep watching it going, oh, I'm so glad my king never forgot who he was. <laughs> oh, he's just... Satan himself can come to him and say, if you are the son of God, he's like, ah, I'm going to smack you with Deuteronomy. And then Jesus would pull up Deuteronomy and like, whack, whack, three times, quotes Deuteronomy. So just, if you, just when you think your, your quiet time is going really well, Christian, until you have Deuteronomy memorized, just remember Jesus is better than you. So in The Lion King, there is this uh, climax of the story, like any story, where the rightful king... Simba, son of the former king, has all the rights. The rights have always been there. The only reason he hasn't been ruling is because he believed lies about himself. Has to go toe-to-toe with Scar, the one who has usurped power in the middle of this leadership vacuum. And there's this moment, like all good tension building, where there are hundreds of hyenas around and a couple of dozen lions and a really ferocious warthog and a meerkat 
who are going to provide the comic relief. Oh, sorry, Zazu, and a bird. Okay. Where the gauntlet hasn't really been thrown down quite yet, but we're getting really close, and everybody's there. Everyone can hear the conversation, and they've got to decide who's on whose side and who's going to be king. And when it comes to everybody springs to action immediately and their allegiances are known. There is Team Scar, there is Team Simba, and it is indicated by behavior, not by mere talk, not by words. It's indicated by behavior. Let me show what I'm talking about. John chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 31 through 35 to give us this whole little section. As soon as Judas left the room. Okay, so if you've got a background in church, you know where we're at. The night right before, right before Jesus is betrayed and killed. Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will soon give glory to the Son. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. I know I keep harping on this, but in case you're new, I just need to say this. If Jesus was the most popular professor at Jerusalem University, he would not write scripture in the way that he talks. What He just blasphemed God if he wasn't God. He can't give a new commandment, but he's doing it. Love each other just as I have loved you you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Okay? So you could sit there and talk and say Simba's the rightful king. You could say, Scar, you have no right to be here. You could say, this is how it ought to be. This would be shoulda, coulda, woulda. But talk is cheap and talk doesn't produce anything. When it's time to actually take action, when it's tough, when there's a fight, and let's be clear, love is always a fight. If love came easy, we wouldn't have to be commanded. When it is time to serve those around you, will you reveal who your king is, who is Lord over you? You will, actually. If I serve others in that moment, Everybody knows who my king is. That's what verse 35 is. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Who's your rabbi? I don't have to tell you who my rabbi is. I'm going to love and serve, and then my testimony will be valid when I let you know. Jesus, Lord over me, king over me. Second, for you note takers, I, as a Christian, I am commanded to love other Christians like Jesus loved me, or in the same way Jesus loved me. We're not going to go to Ephesians 5, but it's there. You should take a look at it. But but here, just in the text we're already in, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. That sounds cute if you go over it too fast. But can we agree that Jesus' love toward the church was huge and painful and sacrificial? That cost him something? Okay? Now, let's not get screwy theology. 
We cannot die on a cross for the sins of our friend. Okay? We're not Messiah. But he is saying that his love for the church is still an example. There is a carrying of the cross for God's glory, for the blessing of others, and for my own greatest joy in obedience. This is the model for obedience. When Jesus hung on a cross 2,000 years ago, he was offering as a sacrifice. Conrad talked about the sacrificial system earlier, where we used to take live animals and kill them and offer them to God. Jesus, at the start of his ministry, had a prophet point him out and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was meant to communicate to a Jewish audience exactly what was going on. And he gives himself, morally perfect, having never sinned, he said, I will die in the place of rebellious humanity. This is the only way. And he knew it was the only way. Because the night before, he talks to his father, Father, is there any other way? It's always interesting when the heat comes, when you think you have two core values that are equal, one will reveal itself when the heat comes. And Jesus, able to see the horrors of the cross, was not willing to allow his father to be disrespected, disobeyed, dishonored in any way, and he was not willing to allow sinners to stay in our just condemnation. He wasn't going to do it. He loved. He's a God who is love. It's not just a verb for him. It's who he is. And this was the example. As I have loved you, love each other. So this isn't in the notes, but I need to say it out loud. Brothers and sisters, it might not even be love until it costs me something. It might be just a nice action. Do you know how many nice actions happen? I used to be in, in real estate, and it's like just these social butterflies who love being at charity events and nice things and $100 dried chicken dinners and blah, 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 and do-gooders and black tie events. And Can we just admit that my own narcissism gets fed by getting to show up at the event where all the do-gooders are hanging? I'm doing good, I'm doing good, like... Does this cost me something? Like, if you if you can't even pay your rent, you're honest, you don't know where your next meal coming comes coming from, and you gave a hundred dollars to a charitable cause and didn't get to show up and look awesome, like that would be really sacrificial. Uh, I know some people in our church that are really just touch and go income wise. And a month ago, when we called for tents to be donated for people that are literally sleeping out in the rain, they showed up with tents. <laughs> Why, that's the kingdom of God right there. I'll shelter you. My Savior will shelter me. That's faith I wish I had. That is faith that I wish I had. The cross is the example cross is the example that Christ gave to Christians of here's how you're going to, you want to know how to do it? Watch. And then he grabs his cross and he goes. It's not complicated, but it is hard. That's how sledgehammer works. My love toward other Christians is a measure of Christ's discipleship of me. 
is the rabbi discipleship. So I talked a minute about lordship, lord and slave or servant, king and member of the realm. Now we're talking about rabbi and disciple. I'm not just trying to fill my head with what he knows in his head. I'm also trying to become like him. And Jesus says that you want to know what discipleship this is right in that same verse we just read. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my students at university. Right? Guys, I keep, I keep screwing up Bible verses. I've done this almost two years now on purpose because you, you probably already know this. I tend to mess up the verse on purpose to reveal what we actually believe. Just in case you were wondering what my secret, you know, little evil trick was. I'm going to love someone else, though Jesus will know that he, everyone will know Jesus was my favorite professor back in my, you know, graduate studies. We think that. That he was the most influential philosophy teacher. And I took some good nuggets from what he had to say. No. That you are my disciples. That means I'm your rabbi. That means you are absolutely categorically surrendering every part of your life to try to be like me. That's bigger. That is much bigger. I'm not taking not just knowledge from you. I'm trying to become like you. Whoa. And your rabbi is sinless. Problem? Oh, you guys are, okay, I have a problem. I'm a sinner. Oh, my, you got, you know, ARCF is filled with sinless people. That's great. I'm a sinner. If my rabbi is sinless, I have problems. Unless he is the very source of grace in the universe. That's the only way it's going to work. He's going to have to be gracious with me. And so defined by grace is Christ's person and Christ's actions that he not only went to the cross to save me from my sin in some general ethereal sense, he actually took all of my sin with him and it was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And that's why it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It, that is not some, that is not some cute I'm choosing to feel happy on a lousy day song. He took my sin and he nailed it to his own cross. And that is why I have hope. That is why I have life. That's why I got out of bed this morning. My love toward other Christians is a measure of Christ's discipleship of me. Is he actually making me into his image? Is the Holy Spirit in me, the word of God, the community of faith? Are they being used by the sovereign God to change Greg so he is more loving? To change Steve so he is more loving? Like, it's one of the barometers. Just check the love right here. Just check it. Am I growing to be more like Jesus? And it's not even the love of the whole world, although that's critical. Just loving other Christians. You and I don't think the same way. You, you and I don't smell the same. You and I don't have the same cultural values. Like, and Jesus' first 12 disciples 
had a guy who worked for the outside invading government and a terrorist who was trying to kill those government workers. In the same Sunday school class. Now, isn't that cute? Work your little flannel graph with this one. This Christian A and Christian B want to kill each other. And Jesus says, love one another. How does that work? When a U.S. Marine and a member of the Taliban get saved on the same day. How does that work? Is that easy? Is that complex? The situation is complex, but love is not. God handed both of those men a sledgehammer. Love one another. But there is comp... Love one another. I didn't say it was going to be easy. There are going to be muscles you've never used before. You're going to be sore at the end of this. But you'll get better at it. And you're going to look more like your father in the end. So this is my second born, Gabriel. That's not actually true. This picture is more than a year old. This is what Gabriel used to look like. And he was in that phase where the ends of his fingers were the yummiest things that he had ever found. Straight into the mouth all the time. When Gabriel was a newborn, everybody reacted the way that everybody reacts when a new human being comes into this world. They investigated the eyes. Investigate. Oh, that's... That's so-and-so's nose. Oh, that's so-and-so's cheeks. He looks like you. No, no, he looks like you. No, he looks more like grandpa. No, he looks more like uncle so-and-so. In this way or in that way. Or his feet look like you. Verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. If you're a Christian, do you look like your father? You want to know how to make sure you look like your father? Love one another. But it's complex. He's a Republican and I'm a Democrat. I didn't say it wasn't going to be complex. I handed you a sledgehammer and I said, swing. This is going to be hard. It's going to develop muscles you don't necessarily have right now. Do it anyway. Jesus' cross was a sledgehammer, right? Complex religiously, complex politically, complex relationally. And for Jesus, it's actually quite simple. I'm going to do the most horrifyingly brutal thing. I'm just going to surrender myself to a horrifying execution. That's all I have to do. See how easy that is? No, it's not easy. It's simple, though. I will love other Christians because it's a part of my preparation for heaven. If you're a Christian... I will, I stated it like a declaration, like a commitment. I will love other Christians because it's part of my preparation for heaven. Now turn with me out of John over to 1 Thessalonians 3 for this last point, and then we're going to wrap up here pretty soon. 1 Thessalonians 3. What's interesting is you try not to set the, bet the farm uh, on theology that's a part of an intro greeting or an outro. Like you need to analyze each text as for what it is. So, so listen, it's a little bit of a doxology. So listen to it for what it is. May, our, may God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. So this Christian church in Thessaloniki, Thessalonica, however you say it. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow 
So not, may, may not just he, he grow your love, but to the point of overflowing, like as if there could be too much love, as if that's even a thing. Just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your hearts strong. Did he just say your heart gets stronger by choosing to love consistently? Oh man, that sounds like some muscles I haven't used before. Your heart gets stronger by actually loving, not talking about love, not another Bible study on love. You have to actually do it. Blameless. Uh-oh. That's, that's, that sounds like holiness talk. Paul is saying that the Christian heart is made more and more like Jesus. You are actually holier, sinning less because you're loving more. It's really, really hard to love somebody and sin against somebody at the exact same time when love is the very character and nature of your father. I don't even know this is possible. How, you're right. If it was really love, how could there be any sin in it? I'm, I have to think about that one. Hand that one to the philosophers. Let them deal with it. And holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. Man, you can sell books saying, I'm the one who figured out when Jesus is coming back and what it's going to look like. And he, I'm, I was in heaven for 17 minutes. I was in hell for 23 seconds. You can make a lot of money writing a book like that. And But what does Paul do? When he talks about the coming again of the Lord Jesus, when he talks about Jesus coming back, he's saying, you know, your lives are going to be presented to Jesus as a fragrant offering there at the end. And love is going to make you exactly who and what you're supposed to be. So you're worried about analyzing the three and a half weeks in Daniel. And this guy over here is worried about loving his neighbor. Who's going to get farther with the return of Christ? Who's going to get farther? If Paul just said love, transforming the Christian heart, transforming the Christian life so that you are ready for when Christ returns. Like, that's important. <laughs> this is important stuff. Do you want to know when Jesus is coming back or do you want to be ready for when Jesus comes back? Because Satan knows. That's not doing him any favors. I shouldn't say Satan knows. Only the Father knows. But... Revelation says Satan knows his time is short. So would knowing really help you if you're not going to be ready? In fact, the coming of judgment, if you're not ready, is terrifying. Why do, why do we, why is it that we're just so obsessed with knowing? We don't need to know when Jesus has come back. We need to be ready. How many people for 2,000 years have died? I would submit to you it's 100%. So far, 100% mortality rate on planet Earth. There are a couple guys in the Bible, but, you know, mostly, 100%. So when does that person meet Jesus, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, is what the Scripture says. So maybe love matters more than guessing games. Just maybe. Love is actually preparing me for heaven. Anybody want to go to heaven? Any takers? Right? So the hard work of loving somebody that's hard to love, you got to look in the mirror every once in a while and remember that we're no you know, cakewalk either. The hard work of love is preparing me for an unbelievable eternity that is greater than anything I could imagine by God's grace and his mercy. Jesus on the cross stamped not only my guilt onto him, he stamped his holiness onto me. So I will walk into heaven one day and I will spend eternity 
generally speaking, with the blessing that Jesus Christ deserved. Yes, there are blessings that Jesus talked about constantly. There are more details than that. But generally speaking, I'm walking into heaven as if I was morally sinless because of Jesus' imputed holiness onto me. Man, I want to be ready for heaven. Would it be easier to do hard things if you could get it into your head and into your heart? Man, this is God preparing me for heaven. Right? An eternal perspective on a difficult thing. Like an athlete doing this 300th push-up in a row going, you know what? Sunday is game day and I'm going to be more ready because of this pain right now. I wonder if it would give some focus. So this week, if you're anything like me, if you do not live in the same city as mom, uh, but you still needed to buy a Mother's Day card, I needed to get mine in the mail by Wednesday afternoon. I needed to go to Owasso, Oklahoma. And so Wednesday, I'm picking out a card. And there are a lot of tasks that go into this. I need to, somebody give me an amen, remember that Mother's Day is coming up. That was step one, right? And then get to the store where they're going to have cards. And then I look for the right card. And pay for the card so I don't see the police any more than I have to. Go home and write something nice and genuine in the card. Realize that my mom moved from Southern California to Oklahoma and that I don't remember her snail mail address. Text my sister. Like there were a lot of steps. Theoretically, I'm not saying this happened Wednesday, just theoretically. These are all the steps that could go into making the Mother's Day card happen. Now here's the deal. Did I enjoy any part of that? Those of you who know me best, I hate having to remember things. I just, I want the whole world to be like spelled out for me in plain text, like all caps in a crayon is pretty much what I need. I hate having to remember. No, I, I, having to decide exactly what. You don't do something like this because you enjoy every step of it. You do it because you have joy for the end result. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus even went to his cross for the joy set before him. He could look past the pain and see the joy of honoring his father, glorifying his father, loving and serving and redeeming his children. There are all kinds of things that we do because the end result brings joy, even if the steps along the way don't necessarily bring joy. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, every time you are challenged to love somebody and you are loving them, the Spirit's empowering you to do that, the Word is encouraging you, the family of faith is encouraging you, God is getting you ready for heaven. In heaven, let's just guess, let's just guess, are you and I going to love each other and God perfectly in heaven or will there still be sin? Yeah, there's no sin. If you've read the Bible, you know there's no sin in heaven. He is preparing us for an eternal behavior. We will love God perfectly and consistently forever. And he's getting us ready. And it might be painful steps now, but we sure are going to like where God is taking us in the continual challenge. So if you are a Christian, do not fight the process of the Holy Spirit making you ready for heaven. Don't fight it. That's what you're doing. Don't fight it. Oh, they're so hard to, yeah, oh, I hate them. Careful with that word. 
What if every challenge to love, what if Christians could just embrace it as a challenge that isn't from the sinful person in front of them, but it is a challenge from the Most High God? I'm giving you this difficult person because I love you so much. Prosperity gospel won't get you there. If you think you're in Jesus' team just for Jesus to make you happy and successful all the time, don't think this God won't wound you. The God of the Bible will wound you because he loves you so much. He wounds me because he loves me so much. He puts me through pain because he loves me so much. If I never experienced any pain, how unleashed would my narcissism be? Jesus Christ is far more concerned with you and I's ability for love to slowly crush pride and narcissism, for the love to grow and to prepare us for heaven. That was his chief concern. And our American idolatry over comfort, that's just a threat to the growing of love. Very rarely can I love you and stay comfortable. Very rarely, if ever. Love always has a cost, brothers and sisters. If you're uh, not a part of the Christian faith but exploring it, I want you to know the Christian definition of love is something that costs. It's painful and it's worth it. It's painful and it's worth it. It's hard and it's worth it. You might be asking yourself, if you're not a part of the Christian church but you're exploring Christian faith, you might be asking yourself, why do Christians have to learn to love why is the New Testament communicating it as this journey and this process? Like, if you guys are so special, you should just be loving all the time. And, well, really the answer to this conundrum that looks oftentimes like Christian hypocrisy um, is that a Christian is not morally perfect the way that Jesus is. That's actually the issue. A Christian's not morally perfect, and if they try to tell you otherwise, they don't understand what Christianity is all about. Don't listen to them. The Holy Spirit of the living God is working on a Christian and working in our hearts to change us and mold us and shape us to be more like Jesus, and we mess it up constantly. And so it is a journey, and it is a process to be selfless. It is a journey, and it is a process to develop the muscles to swing a heavy sledgehammer to break hard things inside my own heart, to break hard things in our world as we hate each other and rage against each other. It's difficult, and I'm learning to do it and I'm not perfect by any means and, and I hope that if you're exploring faith you receive that as really really good news there is a lie that floats out in the world that I have to clean myself up to then come to God I have to clean myself up and make myself morally acceptable before I could walk into a church and those things are lies those things are lies uh, in fact, the Bible shows us over and over again that if you go to work cleaning yourself up to make yourself acceptable for God, you'll never stop washing. And you'll be trapped. And one day God will judge you and condemn you because me scrubbing Christ's blood off of my hands like Pilate is actually self-reliance. I think I can clean myself up when God has already told me I can't. He has told me, Greg, trust in me, trust in my cross to wash you clean. So if you're at home and you're scrubbing your hands, trying to be morally good enough, I'm begging you to please stop. Christ's cross is the only thing powerful enough in the whole universe to wash you, to wash me.
So lean in deeply, please lean in and trust Christ's cross to wash you clean. It doesn't just wash you clean, it gives you a new father. God is your father, Jesus is your savior and Lord over you. That's what this is to be a Christian. It's not, I give you some blanket forgiveness and you're not transformed by it. I am so transformed by the, the forgiveness that I then seek the rest of my life to obey. This is why James talks the way he does about obedience. Obedience does not save a Christian. Obedience is a marker that I was saved. It shows how transformed by grace I really was. I can give you grace because I've experienced grace a thousandfold bigger than what the grace that you need from me. So if you're exploring faith, I just wanted to explain that to you. Then here are our practical app questions. Uh, first for those who already love Jesus. Is Jesus really my king? Is Jesus really my rabbi? Really? Does he get what he wants? Does he... Do I act as if he has the authority to command me? Command was the word right there in the text. Not the only place in scripture that God commands his people, by the way. Not the only one. It's not a little slip up, some scribe somewhere meant to say suggestion. <laughs> you know, and he just, oops, and he, I got the wrong letter in there. Uh-uh. Calling yourself a, we're, we live in the world of identity politics where I self-identify as something and then everybody else has to accept it. But that doesn't work when you die and you're standing in front of the living God. So I can call myself a Chevy. I can sit in the garage and I can make revving noises. It doesn't make me a Chevy. Your self-identification means nothing. It just doesn't because you don't have all knowledge. You don't have all wisdom and you're not morally perfect. What is really, really important is the God who has no sin, the God who there's nothing he doesn't know and there's no end to his love and mercy. What he says about you, that matters. And even Jesus Christ, who is morally perfect, his ministry started with a statement from his father about who he was. Jesus got his identity from his father. Who do you think you are? to take your identity from a lesser being like, I don't know, you. You and I do not have the right to just say, I am this with no objective evidence. Walk away from this silliness, Christians. You don't get to just say, I'm a Christian. You don't. Because the text today out of John 13 is one of many. If you were really transformed by my grace, you'd behave like this. If my grace really was amazing, you would act like this. And you wouldn't be perfect, but you would fight for holiness. You'd fight for it. Because you cannot convince somebody. You ever read the book of Acts? Angry religious types who have the police on their side, pointing guns at people saying, you will not preach in that name anymore. And they say, we cannot help but proclaim what we have seen and heard. You want to know where holiness comes from? When you cannot deny that you have seen him crucified and you saw him dead and then you saw him live again and I heard about it, like, you just can't do anything to a Christian that is utterly convinced about what they have seen and what they have heard. Is he your Lord? Those of you who call yourselves Christians, when he speaks, do you obey? Do you fight for obedience at least? Is he really Lord? Is he really rabbi? Am I trying to become like him? You don't just listen to your rabbi's words. That's really important. But you also get up and move the second rabbi leaves town to go teach somewhere else. You get up and move. And guess what? You don't get a vote. 
Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, those guys didn't get to vote about what town they were going to next. They didn't get to vote as to whether Jesus was going to heal this person or that person or nobody. They didn't get to vote over how they were going to feed 5,000 plus people. There is no democracy in discipleship, brothers and sisters. You don't get to tell Jesus how it's going to be, and you don't even get one small vote out of the whole church of Jesus Christ. He is the head. That's what headship means. The brain sends commands, and we obey. Is he Lord? Is he rabbi? If you're exploring faith, ask yourself this one. Do I want Jesus to be king or Lord over me? Do I want Jesus to be my rabbi? Do I want him to be in control of everything, the chief center of my existence? And when you read the Bible for yourself, I'm going to impress on you in particular the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you read about who Jesus was and how he treated people and how he interacted with God and how he interacted with people that were self-righteous, do you see a cool religious teacher or do you find yourself believing that he is God in the flesh? That, that's going to be the key for you as you investigate Jesus. Do I find my heart strangely desiring to make him the center of everything? And I've never had that desire before, so that's weird to me. If you have that desire, the Holy Spirit just changed you from the inside out. If you want to love him, you do love him, and you now want to worship him and make him the center of your existence, you're now a Christian. Welcome to the family of God. Welcome to this one body that has many parts. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to go. Holy Spirit, fill those of us who love the Son and empower us to love despite every barrier. God, believing that love is strong enough to crash through every hard thing that I think, oh, I couldn't possibly love this person or this people group. God, you've said that we will be marked by our love, so please protect us, God. Protect us from selfishness. Protect us from the worship of comfort. Protect us from narcissism. Anything, God, that is the op. Protect us from pride. God, we confess that when you put challenges in front of us to love somebody that we're really not interested and it seems difficult, we, we confess that all too often we have not seen your fingerprints all over that situation. But God, we want to embrace every single challenge that you put in front of us, believing that you are preparing us for heaven. And we thank you that you are taking us to heaven by your goodness and mercy. We thank you that you're a big God and a strong God who is mercy and who is justice and who is love and who is righteousness all at the same time. We thank you, God, that you are above, sovereign in every way over the chaos of our world. And as we, Lord, are very tempted as Christians to take sides in every single fight, we ask that your spirit would lead us to look up to wherever you are standing and then walk toward you to join your side. 
In the priceless name of Jesus Christ, we ask for all of this. God's people said, go honor and love your mom. I love you guys. Have a great week.